0: You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 259 is something like, what are complex ideas and how can they go wrong? We're reading the second half of book two of John Locke's An Essay Concerning Human Understanding from 1689. For more information, please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, complex yet not conceptually confusing in Madison, Wisconsin. This is
1: Wes Alwyn, attempting to enumerate all my constituent ideas in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Dylan Casey, furnished with a great number of simple ideas conveyed
2: in by my senses, fit for my simple turn of mind in Madison, Wisconsin.
0: (laughs) I like that simple turn of mind. You're filling the Seth, usually self-assigned role. (laughs) Trying to double dip. Seth being out today, I think we should raise alarm among our listeners that his wife was exposed, doesn't necessarily have COVID, but was exposed. And so there's a whole internal, basically he's taking care of his child, but that is why we have no Seth and why we probably should not do a full on part four of this because he's missed part three. You can't have somebody miss part of it. I don't know. We can figure that out later, but man, book one, kind of manageable, a nice little thing we could chew last time somewhat bigger. We had to pick and choose a little. This, even just finishing book two, pretty sprawling. A lot of rabbit holes we could potentially disappear down for a whole episode on free will, on personal identity, on substance. So I had suggested we start more or less from the end of the book where he's talking about there's like four different criteria on how ideas can go wrong.
1: Here's what we've got on the table. You know, We've got the power section and free will, which I don't know if we agreed to skip that or not, or we can come back to that later. And then we've got the personal identity section, which I also think we might be putting off right. But I don't think we've done enough of chapter 22 onwards, where we talk about mixed modes and substances and relations, including causality. So I was thinking if we'd want to leave aside the free will and personal identity stuff right now, and maybe come back to that, then what we would do is We would start with chapter 22, do all the mixed mode and substance stuff, skip over chapter 27, and then continue with chapter 29. And chapter 28 is another thing to think about because that's about morality, essentially.
0: Let me make my pitch for this structure that I had presented, which turns things around. So simple ideas, there's something non-problematic about them. We found a lot that was problematic about them because what we actually perceive are complex things. You can perceive a whole scene of people doing stuff. But we're able to pick out from that, he thinks, individual simple ideas. In a sense, we can't get them wrong, right? Because we're just reading off of our experience. Even if, as in the case of secondary qualities, there's a disconnect. We think that the yellow is out in the world and not in our minds. There's still, we're accurately saying that there is something out in the world that is causing yellow in me. And that is all it is to have a simple idea like yellow. But when we start putting things together, when we come up with something like justice, like we really, when we name any human action, when we name any concept, then we're putting things together and there are ways in which that can go wrong. And I read these sections about the complex ideas, whether he's talking about relations or cause and effect as examples of, you know, the reason that he's feeling the need to not just do the phenomenology that he was doing in the first, in talking about simple ideas, saying, yes, we get this idea, but to clarify philosophical issues surrounding it, because these are examples to me of ways in which the complex ideas go wrong. The obvious immediate example to me was relations, right? That's the kind of first most important complex idea. Anytime we connect any two things together, and there are a lot of relations that they might look like simple ideas, but really they implicitly refer to something else. So right there, I think that by giving at least a short amount of time to those latter sections of true and false ideas and vertical and non vertical ideas and kind of getting that conceptual apparatus on the table, I think that might help us to do the analysis of these earlier sections rather than starting with 22 and moving forward.
1: Why don't I just give a brief summary of this and then we can go to the end sections and then maybe come back to these in more detail. But basically, right, he's going to distinguish complex ideas from simple ideas. The sorts of simple ideas that we've discussed have included things like colors, like yellow, or primary qualities, like extendedness and motion. But I I think power is also one of the things that he enumerates as a simple idea. So there are certain ideas of reflection that are also simple. And then we can have complex ideas where we are essentially combining together different ideas. So he's going to talk a lot about modes, which might be confusing because I don't know that we define that early on, but in a way, modes are just types of ideas. There are modes of simple ideas like of motion, for instance, sliding and rolling and tumbling. Modes of thinking would be reasoning, judging volition and knowledge but we also get what he calls mixed modes in chapter two in which you refer both to ideas of reflection and ideas of what we think of as coming from the external world so something like drunkenness for instance is a mixed mode or obligation because these things involve volition right they involve an idea of reflection and they also involve action stuff going on in the world so we stick all these different ideas together think of how you would define drunkenness And you get this complex idea that draws on ideas of reflection and those other
0: ideas. Can we say a little bit more about modes? He likes that better than property for some reason, I think because it encompasses things like power and relations. Ultimately, this is by prelude of talking about substances, that substance ends up being a complex idea and a very problematic one for reasons we'll get into. But he's coming after the scholastics who are focusing on their substances and those things have. Attributes, accidents, properties, modes, whatever you want to call them. He finds modes to be the least controversial way of talking about it I think it seems a little wider that you could say that a power, a potential action that something could take, is a mode of that thing. So talking about duration as a property of thought, you know, like we were doing last time, that seems a little weird. But if you say that duration is something that is revealed by the movement of thought, it's a mode. In other words, the fact that thoughts are sequential, go from one to the other, that's something that thinking is doing. Does that seem accurate? So that a mode is kind of a doing where that could encompass properties, right? Something out there in the world causing yellow in me, that is a mode of whatever that substance is, which again, we don't know offhand. That's not a simple idea.
2: Aren't you conflating mode and power when you're talking that
1: way? I think modes are quite, he's not using it and he even apologizes for this. Because he's saying modes are ontologically dependent on substances, but then he'll warn us that he's not really talking about modes as properties. So he'll tell us in chapter 12 that in a way they're like types or, you know, some of them are abstract ideas like gratitude is a mode. The first examples of modes he gives are triangle, gratitude, and murder. (laughs) These are triangles, a simple mode of extension, and murder is a complex mixed mode.
0: I thought a power was a type of mode, Dylan. That's why I was saying that that most of our ideas are modes
1: power is a simple idea yeah that's why that's why i was confused
0: but there are simple modes as you were just saying right yeah even a color that is a mode
1: no color is a simple idea and yellow is a mode purple is a mode so blue is a mode all the different individual colors are modes of color okay i see it is really weird and i had to like took some time to try to figure it out. It's a weird way of talking that doesn't really line up with the normal substance property talk. And I think that's a function of the weird way in which
0: he's talking about ideas. And he was saying that the mixed modes are mixed because they're from different modalities. That's opposed to adding more of the same. So doesn't he talk about that in terms of when we're talking about time, that we get the idea of a particular duration, and then we can think about adding more and more of that together. That's how we can get even to the idea of infinity. That's not a mixed mode. That's actually just coming from the simple idea of duration, but we're adding it sequentially, you know, the same, and then another a minute, then plus a minute, plus a minute, that can keep going on.
1: Yeah, an hour is a mode of duration. A day is a mode of duration, and we... Similarly, the different numbers are, specific numbers are modes of number. They're complex ideas in the sense that you just combine them together, right? You just repeat a unit to get a larger number. Actually, he calls these simple modes. They're complex ideas, but they're simple modes. It's pretty confusing. But so you get the unit idea repeated to get a larger number. So
2: all of these things are in the backdrop. I'm just reminding myself about how we think about the world. As opposed to an ontology. That's what's confusing. Yeah, so because we're talking about is, this is a problem with English or whatever. We keep talking about is, like color is this, color is this, but it's not an ontology, right?
0: It's the idea of color is a mode, right? Everything we have to deal with is ideas. I like that this is why he's not talking about substances and properties, because that would be talking about things in the world. He's talking about substance is still going to be the thing, but within our experience, there are just ideas, and modes are a type of idea.
1: Yeah, modes are particular articulations of an idea, like yellow being a mode of color. But that's important because when we get to mixed modes, it's a weird way of speaking, but it has important implications. So, you know, when we talk about courage as a mixed mode or justice as a mixed mode, but you think of something like virtue, you know, that's the kind of thing that puzzles Socrates and Plato, right? And part of what's puzzling about it is its role as a mixed mode, is its role as this thing that combines ideas of reflection and ideas of sensation. That's the distinction I was looking for. Those are the two sources. Anything that combines those two sources is a mixed mode. So drunkenness, sensations, you know, you think of what someone does when they're drunk. You think of their behaviors. You think of alcohol. You think of this, that. You also think of the fact that they can't control themselves. You think of volition and mind stuff. Mixed modes matter and mind together.
2: So in a way, mixed modes are a variety of complex modes in that the key with mixed modes is that you're mixing sensation and reflection. Ideas that come to you from sensation and ideas that come to you from reflection. Complex ideas are mixtures of simple ideas, but we still have the sort of taxonomy of simple ideas can be both from the senses and also from reflection. We have both those kinds of simple ideas. So is the distinction with complex ideas? I'm just getting confused about complex ideas, mixed modes.
1: A mode is always a complex
0: idea. Can we consider this with regard to the motion that we talked about we had so much trouble with last time and duration, that I think that motion is going to have to be a mixed mode, right? Because duration is a simple idea, and it comes from just witnessing the sequence of one thought, then another thought, then another thought, you know, the, the succession of ideas. And then we look out in the world, And we have similar in perception, we perceive one thing and then we perceive it in another spot. But it's combined, at least according to his analysis, right? If we got that idea of duration from reflection originally, and now motion is something that's specifically out in the world. We're putting together the idea of the succession of duration that's in our head with actually seeing the chicken running across the road. So that becomes a mixed mode.
1: So this is chapter 14. And unfortunately, he calls it a simple mode. Like he lays this all of this out explicitly, right? So we get chapter 12. He says there's complex ideas. These are modes, substances, relations, right? Then we get simple modes. That includes numbers, specific numbers, and it includes duration. So the modes of duration, hours, days, years, these are simple modes. The reason why it's a simple mode, so he takes pains to defend the idea that it's a simple mode, right, against the people who want to say that this comes from the senses as well, that it comes from motion. He says, no, we don't get this from perceiving the motion of things outside of us, we get it solely from reflecting on the succession of our own ideas. That's his way of defending this as a simple mode duration as a simple mode, duration as a product purely of reflection and not of sensation.
0: Right, but I was talking about motion being a mode. I agree with you that he uses that foundation of duration as a simple idea and also a simple mode to motion being a complex idea.
1: Well, it's chapter 18 and unfortunately, I'm just, he calls that a simple mode as well. All
0: right, well... (laughs) It's difficult based on what we spent a lot of time on last time.
1: So in chapter 18, he gives sliding, as rolling as simple modes of motion, and then modes of thinking, reasoning, judging, volition, and then power as another, I think, form of simple mode. But I think that gets us back to chapter 22. If we want to skip the power chapter, I think we've set the stage for understanding, because I found this extremely confusing, and that's why I thought we... Would we'll pause on it, but understanding obligation and drunkenness is what he calls quote unquote mixed modes. I think we've given a good account of that. And then in chapter three, he'll talk about substances as another form of complex idea and two types of substances, corporeal substances and spirits. And often substances, right, are what we think of as natural kinds. So a man is a substance, a horse is a substance, gold is a substance, water is a substance. These turn out for him to be, right, bundles of ideas. And when we try to metaphysicalize substance and and say it's something underneath all of those ideas, that it's something that, in all these different properties inhere in something we know not what, he thinks that is illegitimate. Our only legitimate conception of substance, which turns out to be obscure, is just that there's a bunch of different ideas that happen to coexist together. not to keep us
2: here too long, but the I mean, mixed modes was where to me, he was being most clear about construction. In section four, he asks a very nice question. So if you have a mixed mode made of many simple ideas, how is it one thing? Where does it get its unity? He says it has unity from an act of mind combining those several simple ideas together, considering them as one complex one consisting of those parts. And then he goes on later to talk about how we do that through experience, observation, invention, and by explaining the names of actions we never saw or notions we cannot see. And by enumerating them, as it were, by setting our imaginations on those ideas, which go to making them up. Basically, we not only invent the things, but we invent the causes. That whole thing sounds pretty interesting, honestly, you know, because we're constructing the world, as far as I can tell, but using sort of Modern language.
0: Right. And I really like this when you think about, you know, Plato asking what is justice? The ways in which these complex ideas go wrong, according to him, are not primarily you can be talking about centaur or something like that. Like you've put together some simple ideas that there's nothing like that exists out in the world. But when you're naming something, you know, the person who invented the idea of hypocrisy he talks about, it's just they're observing. It's exactly what how Wes was describing a complex mode. That you're observing something out in the world, you're attaching some notion of of mental action to it, you know, someone who's acting one way but yet believes some other way, and you've thereby invented the notion of hypocrisy. Now, just like simple modes, there's something that just can't be wrong about that, right? The simple idea, there's something that caused that simple idea in you. And so for that, this kind of complex ideas, it's just, it really comes down to the name. The person who came up with the idea of hypocrisy and called it that, they were by definition right because they were performing a creative act. There is no room for an error to have been introduced in that. It's only if then they're trying to relate it to something else and say hypocrisy is great, (laughs) then that's by then, you know, as we're going to talk about Moral claims like that ended up being relational. It's comparing this notion of hypocrisy to some external standard. That's where it could go wrong. Or if, you know, hypocrisy has now become a common term in the language and you refer to someone's behavior, which is not really hypocritical at all as hypocrisy, you could be wrong about that because you're essentially not. Attributing the name correctly in the way that the inventor of that name did, but that there is something pure about at least when you invent them about these complex ideas.
1: Mixed modes from complex ideas, because they're one type, right? So substances are another form of complex idea, and we can be wrong about them.
0: Because you're attributing something in the world, you're saying there is something objective out there.
1: Yeah. So, but mixed modes in particular, right, this is chapter 30, Mark, as you just said, in the same way that all simple ideas are real, right? He's going to say all simple ideas are real because the reality is just a matter of us being affected something right there's no way to say yellow is not a real thing something in the world caused it right and so if it's caused in us it's real and you know as we know these qualities just are the powers of things to cause those ideas in us so we similarly with these mixed modes they are always real always they are also always quote-unquote real but for a different reason the causality doesn't come from outside we voluntarily put all those ideas together in a way it's like we are creating the standard when we talk about obligation or drunkenness or particular virtues with these mixed modes we are setting standards by which we form judgments about the world and we're doing that spontaneously when we get on to substances, there are ways in which they can be wrong in relation to the world, right? So if you have an idea of a centaur, one of the ways a complex idea can actually be not real is just that the combinations of our ideas in our minds as in a centaur combining a horse body and the, uh, the body of a man aren't actually combined in things Outside of us or don't correspond to combinations of causes of ideas outside of us.
2: Wouldn't there also be? I guess we're just getting into the idea of mistakes as well, right? So you have something like a centaur, which is an invention. So that would be Locke's account of that invention as a product of our mind. But then you would have things that you would optical illusions or mistakes where you would say, like the observation that the rod that's stuck halfway in the water is bent is on the one hand true. But the conclusion that the rod is bent is false because what goes into making that conclusion is not factoring in the way in which water behaves versus air and the transition that the rod has going through the water, that kind of thing. That doesn't seem to me like the same kind of
1: mistake that are building a centaur. So he's going to distinguish, right, real and fantastic ideas, which is the centaur example, and then adequate and inadequate, chapter 31, right? So real and fantastical, 30, adequate and inadequate, 32, and then true and false, chapter 23. So those are three different standards.
0: Actually, there's one more, 29, of clear and obscure.
1: Did I skip that? Oh, right. Yes. Right, right.
0: So are they clear and distinct, or are they obscure and confused? So that's actually two different standards. Are they clear or not? Are they distinct or not?
1: So we get a total of five different oppositions in four chapters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which are mostly pretty redundant of each other. I think you could just talk loosely about legit ideas and not legit ideas. And there are a few places where these things come apart that are useful. Substance being one of them, I think, right? Should we get into substance since this has been the thing that's looming here?
1: We did real and fantastical, right? The sense in which all simple ideas are real. All mixed modes are real because they are their own archetypes, right, that we create. But substances aren't necessarily. And then he gets into the adequacy and inadequacy. And we get the same thing with the mixed modes, right? They're all adequate.
0: Adequate ideas perfectly represent their archetypes, which the mind supposes them taken from. Inadequate have partial or incomplete representation. So a simple idea, you saw the yellow. That is adequate. There's nothing hidden to the yellow about that. But if you're thinking about, you know, the idea of gold, the idea of a substance, really it's a whole bunch of properties and your idea of gold is never going to encompass all of those properties. So it's inevitably going to be inadequate.
1: Take the idea of a triangle. In that idea, an essence is contained in that and from that essence we can deduce a lot of different properties, right? We could do a lot of deductions from the geometrical figure of a triangle. In the case of substances, material substances, for instance, we cannot do the same thing and the essence that we normally you know if we want to talk us about a substantial form in a scholastic sense it's not useful to him and it's not adequate in the sense it doesn't do anything for us so for instance if we know the color of gold that doesn't allow us to deduce its malleability for instance in the same way that simply by knowing the idea of a triangle we know its essence and therefore we know all the properties we can deduce from it with something like gold or any substance its actual essence is what he wants to say is the kind of internal micro constitution of it right so basically what we would think of today as modern physics and chemistry the essence of water will turn out to be h2o that's what he's saying not some substantial form that we associate with the complex idea with the bundle of ideas that we normally associate with essences so if you think back to kripke you know he's arguing against definite descriptions right as a way of picking these things out in the world i don't pick out gold in the world simply by saying oh here are the necessary." insufficient conditions of being gold, here are these properties, or even going back to a scholastic or Aristotelian sense and saying, hey, I'm just receptive to the substantial form of gold. What we're doing is we use certain stereotypes or certain, a few different properties and say, okay, here's this thing and it must have some constitution that makes it a substance. But I don't really know what that is, and that's something for investigation. Locke is kind of pessimistic about our ability to get to the bottom of that, right? He says, are we ever going to really know the microscopic constitution of things, the way all the particles work together to produce the macroscopic phenomena? Probably not, he says. But as we know, modern science gave us that ability. And so for him, the essences of things would be these scientific low-level descriptions of them.
2: So answering the question, what is water as H2O... And then worrying about, well, what about the wetness of water? You would only get the wetness of water insofar as it was part of the articulation of the atomic nature of water and, you know, all of the physical analysis and chemical analysis that would go into having that kind of account of wetness regarding molecular bonds at a certain temperature with a constitution of H2O.
0: Wes, you've convinced me by trying to do what I suggested in looking at these later chapters, adequate, inadequate, without having first considered chapter 23 on substance. You just tried to do that, and I thought it was very confusing. And I think actually we are going to have to say more about substance and then keep going back and forth to these like, okay, now that we know what a substance is, is it true? Is it adequate? You know, this kind of stuff. But until we have that stuff from 23 on the table, I think this is going to be very... hopeless (laughs) hopeless.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, let's go through it more slowly. Normally what we think of a substance, right, a substances right are natural kinds, right? Is man, horse, gold, water. Sounds like the cognitive test that Trump was given, right? Just list a few different substances <laughs> in the right order. Why do we think of those things as substances because they are these particular organized beings that are immediately identifiable as types and they're not simply collections that we might put together via some accidental quality like redness. You know, the class of all red things we don't think of as a substance, but these natural kinds, these tightly organized phenomena, which are structured and have these internal functional often or causal relations within them, we think of those tightly organized bundles as substances.
0: Yeah, can I just read the quote from the beginning of chapter 23? The mind being, as I have declared, furnished with a great number of simple ideas conveyed in by the senses as they are found in exterior things or by reflection on its own operations, takes notice also that a certain number of these simple ideas go constantly together, which being presented to belong to one thing and words being inserted to common apprehensions and made use of for quick dispatch are called so united in one subject by one name, by which by inadvertency we are afterward to talk of and consider as one simple idea. In other words, we might consider dog a simple idea, but no, that's a whole bunch of properties, simple ideas that always go together.
1: Yeah. The phenomena that we observe, right, for him is just a bundle of simple ideas. And then we attribute to it, we make the mistake, well, this is where the account gets confusing because you know our inclination is to assign to it a substratum in which all those properties can adhere and call that substance. And that for him is the scholastic error that we want to reject. So for the purposes of his account, initially, we just want to say, forget about that substratum stuff, that scholastic stuff. We're just going to refer to substance as the bundle of simple ideas that we see going together.
2: The example that Mark gave of a dog, we go through this process where we end up with a compilation of simple ideas that we then treat as if it's a simple idea. So that's one way in which you recognize it as a substance. And that's why we have talked about substances are natural kinds. They're things that have a status that's very similar to a simple idea. But the first thing that he does is point out that they're not simple ideas. They act like simple ideas. And then we are led as you were pointing out with the scholastic move to say well what is it that holds in common all of these natural kinds all of these stuff like things and we grew taken down this road of wondering what the thing they all partake in
1: we asked the question of what their essence is right in order to say, why is this thing a substance? We say, well, what is the essence and what is that consistent? So one way of doing this is just to talk about the substratum. The other is to talk about the substantial form. You say there's a form of dog in which all these individuals partake. I just want to give us a little hint of where we're headed, because otherwise it's going to be very confusing. He's saying that's all BS. We tend to give one name to things as you guys pointed out, and think of this as if it's one simple idea when it's not, when really it's just a Combination of a bunch of ideas. But ultimately, what explains, what is the essence of gold? What explains why it is that gold is a substance? It's not just that all those properties of gold are accidentally together in our heads as ideas. There is a real essence to gold, and that essence to gold is its physical microstructure that we can use that we could if we could see. And I'm not making this up, by the way. This is right in the text, in the section 23, so we can get into some of the quotes. But that if we could see, if we had a microscope powerful enough to look at the atoms of gold and if we could understand the way all that stuff worked then we could predict or at least explain why gold causes the particular ideas in us that it does cause and that is its essence that is its true essence and that is the true explanation of what makes it a substance
0: i'm not disagreeing with any of that. However, there's a phenomenological story that I think you're missing here that you are saying there are two ways that you could make this move to substance. One is by talking about the substratum. One is by talking about the essence. The essence, I think, you've given the correct analysis for, that there's this scholastic take on essence. This is Aristotelian take on essence that he thinks is just goofy and we should get rid of. But we're not getting rid of the idea of substance altogether. And I think the idea of a substratum, I think this is right in this first section here that I was quoting from, the latter part of it, is not imagining how these simple ideas can subsist by themselves. We accustom ourselves to suppose some substratum wherein they do subsist and for which they do result, which therefore we call substance. So he's here just talking about our everyday experience as I'm trying to analyze, I have this experience of dog. Well, okay, I'll think about its properties, the modes, the furriness, the sound that's coming from it. But what holds them all together as dog? Well, it seems in our phenomenology that we have something like the property substance distinction. And that is just the way that we're going to have to talk about things that there are, in fact, substances. It's just that he wants us to be clear that we don't really know what we're talking about, right? Philosophers think from that everyday experience that there's a lot that we can go on and say about it, like Descartes seeing Oh, I'm seeing thinking, therefore I see a spiritual substance. Or the materialists that, you know, we perceive matter, therefore we know just even intuitively that there's a material substance that's a necessary part of our ontology. Those philosophical points are a bridge too far beyond a phenomenology.
1: I think it's pretty clear he rejects the idea of there being an actual substance as substrate in which the properties in here. And he gives long critiques of it at various places in this reading.
2: But is Mark reading it that way? I heard Mark reading it that he was making a phenomenological statement of the substances we're talking about are these like dogs and stuff like that. As opposed to necessarily emphasizing that there is a primordial substance that all substances partake of. That's what I took his reading of the end of section one.
0: I'm saying that it's a necessary part of when we identify something as a thing, even putting apart its type of thing Just an individual thing, that there is a substance in front of us that has properties. That's just the way we perceive stuff.
1: Okay, I agree that he says we're inclined to do that. Where I disagree is I think he argues at length that that is an error. I think we'll get to some of those sections, but I think... Well, let's get into some quotes. I think section seven is good for just getting at a more positive idea of what might count as his positive idea of substance, section eight. So in section seven and eight, he's talking about what is a better way to know substance? What is a better way to talk about our comprehension of substance? So section eight, for our senses failing us in the discovery of the bulk, texture, and figure of the minute parts of bodies on which their real constitutions and differences depend, we are fain to make use of their secondary qualities as the characteristical notes in marks right, think of this as stereotype in Kripke, right, we fix natural kinds using characteristical notes and marks, whereby to frame ideas of them in our minds and distinguish them one from another, all which secondary qualities, as has been shown, are nothing but bare powers, for the color of taste and opium are, as well as its soporific or anodyne virtues, mere powers depending on its primary qualities, whereby it is fitted to produce different operations on different parts of our bodies." What he's saying here, there are lots of other parts in the text that are evidence of this, is that if we want to really explain substance, why we call certain things substances and not others, if we really want to talk about quote unquote essence in some coherent way, then we have to talk about physics and chemistry and we have to say why the minute parts of bodies constitute the powers to produce certain types of ideas in us. So again, you know, in the section 10, they'll be talking about macro level properties of gold being dissolvable and certain types of acid, for instance, or yellowness. Ultimately, we have to get to the quote unquote motion of insensible parts to see their quote unquote real constitutions. I just bring that up because I think it's a good kind of foil or a good kind of contrast to the other ways of thinking about substance and essence. Those things that you
2: just talked about in section 10, he's calling powers. The powers, therefore, justly make a great part of our
1: complex ideas of substances. That is what they do. Their disposition to cause certain ideas in us. So the primary qualities cause the secondary qualities because the way they're structured, right?
0: I just don't want us to mix Locke and Hume. You can see where Hume is getting his ideas, but Hume explicitly had this bundle theories. There is no substance there. It is just a bundle of properties. The idea of substance is merely a myth. Likewise, there is no real power. There is merely succession. There's no actual power that makes up cause and effect. But Locke is very free, I think, in very similarly, for the same reason in both cases to say that it is part of our experienced ontology that there really are powers In things, they really are substances. How do we know? The only evidence that we have about those things are the ideas that reach us. But then we make some conclusion just based. You know, this is the kind of thing that. Kant is going to say, yeah, Hume is right, Locke, this is too far. But I think Locke finds it uncontroversial that as a first step in science, that if we experience something, of course there's something out in the world that has the power to cause that in me. Likewise, if there are a bunch of properties that are welded together, of course there must be something out in the world that is welding those together. You are giving Wes the detailed scientific story of how we would figure out what that actually is. But in both cases, he's ad- willing to admit that there is a fundamental ontological thing, a metaphysical thing that we are justified in making that Hume and Kant say that, no, actually the data doesn't let us do that?
1: Well, I think Kant just moves to a lower level, right? He'll treat the primary qualities as secondary qualities of their own, but he'll say there are things in themselves. It's very similar to Locke in a way because it's just all you really need to say. You don't have to treat scientific explanations as essences per se. You could just say that there's some structure out there, Right. All it has to be is some structure of the thing out there. And he'll say things like this at various points in this text. All you need to know is that there's structure out there and that the structure of ideas in our minds is isomorphic with that, is systematically correlated with the structure out there. You don't need to know that yellow looks like yellow, that it's a copy of a real yellow thing out there. But really, you don't even need to know that the primary qualities are copies in some sense. All you need to know is the primary qualities are systematically related to some mind independent Structure. That does the trick as well. But yeah, I think you're totally right, Mark. He's totally all about the mind independent structure determining and causing these ideas. And how do we know that? That's a very tricky philosophical question. If all we have are our own ideas, how do we infer that there are things outside of us causing them? That's tricky. I mean, part of his account that he gives with power is that we make inferences from our experience of our will our sense of causality is in. Fundamental ways derived from our concept of will and being able to affect the world with our own volition. Our conclusion about
2: causality is correlated to this distinction between simple ideas that come to us through our senses versus simple ideas that come to us through reflection, our own self motions. And because we have those self motions and we can use that to sort of cross correlate with the rest of the world and Establish causality that way.
0: I always tend to take with Locke and Descartes their comments about religion more seriously than at least West does. I think that part of the reason that we know that. There's a real thing out in the world that isn't just systematically connected to, but that you know our ideas actually resemble in some strong ways. That we can know things about the thing in itself is because God is not a deceiver. Locke explicitly says that so many times. Of course, he makes it so that our beliefs are more or less fit to what the world is. There's so much more about the world that we don't know and we can't know because we're finite and limited. He's just not afraid of a radical skepticism in the way that I think Kant even feels the need that he has to justify himself again.
1: He doesn't say that it's not that. God is deceiving us. He does say ultimately when he appeals to simple ideas and how we know they're quote unquote real, he wants to say that their reality is not dependent on them being copies, right? They're just products of some external causal thing. And when he appeals to God there, it's just his way of saying these are brute correlations that are rigged, right? You know, in our philosophy of mind episodes, and we talk about how do we correlate a brain state with an experience. We can't infer from looking at brain states what the associated experiences would be. We have to ask people, and then we create tables. We create tables of associations between brain states and experiences. So they're brute causal correlations. So, what he's trying to say with the appeal to the God stuff, God just made it this way. God made it so that particular primary qualities of a certain sort would produce yellow instead of green. And we can't explain why. The appeal to God is just a way of talking about the inexplicability of that brute relation that we cannot look at certain primary qualities and infer the subjective qualia of yellowness the concept of deception is incoherent in that context there's no meaning to it the reason there's no meaning to it is
2: because of taking that brute table of correspondence and saying that there's that correspondence there and that's just part of the structure of the world. So the reason that factoring out deception is a possibility is important is because it makes it moot whether or not that relation is part of the world as natural or part of the world because God made it. It doesn't matter. Honestly, it means you don't have to believe in God To have that association.
1: What does it mean for God to deceive us in this circumstance, right? It means, oh, when a wavelength of a certain light hits our eyes, he should have made it green, but he made it yellow. He's deceiving us. That's a meaningless distinction that would not constitute a deception. These are brute, low-level correlations.
0: So I keep wanting to bring up, I'm glad we keep circling back to this. Chapter 32 is of true and false ideas. 15, the one man's idea of blue should be different from another's. It could be very possible that when I see a green thing, I have the phenomenal experience. I have the quality of yellow and you have the quality of green. He's actually open to that. He just thinks it doesn't matter because what we're talking about when we say the color is real. Is we are saying, there is a thing out there in the world that causes some qualia or other. And it's because they have that common cause, we can both refer to that thing as green. Whether or not if you could do the philosophy of mind brain hookup thing where somehow then you could see through my eyes and you could see, oh, man, you're actually having the qualia of yellow. Totally irrelevant. So actually it's God could be deceiving us in that way. It's not a brute correlation that this thing out there will always result in a particular quality because that really could be different in in different people. And some people are colorblind. And of course, they're going to have a different thing. It's just that, you know, we have a nice system where we can get along in the world. God has created things so that we're not going to have systematic.
1: Right. We can replace God with evolution. Right? in all of these different accounts. I mean, there is something that could be, there would be wrenches in the system, right? It's about the relationship between our ideas. So if I saw a cat going up the tree when you saw the cat going down the tree, then we'd have a big problem. You see green where I see yellow, it doesn't matter because it doesn't disrupt any systematic relationships between all the pieces stay the same and we're never going to even notice it. We'll notice it if he does something beyond simple ideas if we go to a higher level.
2: I completely agree about what well, you just said. You could replace God by... a evolution or any of these things.
1: I think that it's
2: really important in the context of our knowability about the world that the notion of god as a deceiver is completely rejected because it makes the world knowable apart from revelation, from it being revealed. In fact, it means that it goes to the idea that the world is knowable by all human beings in principle and that the understanding of how the world is is not fundamentally have to be revealed to us by some kind of chosenness. This goes to the politics. This means that in the end, we probably would have people who can make conclusions about the world that aren't chosen.
0: I think actually, Dylan, I might disagree with directly what you're saying, just because, and I'm looking in my notes of where I mentioned Revelation, it's actually just in the translator's introduction or something, which says to me that probably he says something more stuff about this later in the book. So far, we only have evidence in what we read, like in the morality sections here. What my understanding was, was that there are a lot of things we can figure out from reason alone, but... As we've seen in the No Innate Ideas chapter, there are a lot of fundamental moral things that people just disagree about. And it is actually that we in the West, him talking, have the advantage that we have the correct thing revealed to us by revelation, which then we can use reason to confirm and we use reason to how we read the Bible. like. It's not unproblematic in the way that I feel like it is for Kant. That for Kant, it really is just reflect on your reason. That gives you moral law. And I think Locke might have a more nuanced picture than that. The very last chapter in this very long book is why people are so stubborn and continue to disagree (laughs) about fundamental things. And that shows to me that it's not just a matter of reason just reveals all this stuff. It would be nice if God and his book gave us a starting point. I think he's willing to yield that much to the religious powers that be. Well, let's consider more about what makes ideas legit and not legit and get more into, we've talked about substance enough, but we need to get into then what makes for identity of substances and personal identity, and uh, there's some other issues like that, relations we haven't yet talked about. Let's do that in part two. You can get that right now if you become a partially examined life citizen, or you can wait until next week. Thanks.